0: This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. We begin today with a long overdue action to protect your privacy. The new digital charter implementation action, if passed, will rewire Canada's privacy laws and it threatens to hammer companies with big fines who breach your privacy. Fines that could reach in the billions. Canada's new privacy bill, Bill C-11, is only a couple of weeks old, but the proposal is already generating debate in the House of Commons and careful study and commentary from the privacy community. As the biggest overhaul of Canada's privacy rules in two decades, the bill will undoubtedly be the subject of deep analysis and lengthy committee review, likely to start in early 2021. Last week's Law Bites podcast featured Navdeep Baines, the Innovation Science and Industry Minister who was responsible for the bill. This week, I'm pleased to welcome Professor Emily Laidlaw of the University of Calgary to the podcast. The newly appointed Canada Research Chair in Cybersecurity Law, Professor Laidlaw recently posted a helpful analysis of Bill C 11 with her take on the good, the bad, and the missed opportunities. Emily, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Okay, it's a real pleasure to have you. And and I'd be remiss if I didn't start by congratulating you. First, uh, recently named a a Canada Research Chair in Cybersecurity. It's an awesome accomplishment and uh, really delighted to see it. You've been doing some amazing work in this field for many years. And uh, most recently, I saw you wrote a really great post on Canadian privacy law, specifically on Bill C-11 titled The Good, The Bad, and The Missed Opportunities. And I thought that this would be a good chance to supplement the programming on this podcast. I had the Innovation, Science, and Industry Minister Navdeep Baines on last week to provide the government's perspective, his perspective on what's in the bill. I think it was really useful to dig a little deeper into some of those issues. So why don't we start if there's a good if there's good bad and missed opportunities why don't we start with the good? What are some of the things that you like about bill C11? Yeah,
1: you know there's a lot to like about it. I um I I liked that there were several user empowerment type provisions and and some of it is it seems to be kind of, you know, bringing in provisions that are GDPR like, so rights of data portability, um, I like that there was, you know, a broadening of the right, uh, to withdraw consent. I like that, uh, there's a right to be able to, you know, have your personal information deleted. So all those type of provisions, and I'm sure we'll circle back and talk a bit more about those in detail. But, but those really are the ones that stuck out to me. Um, I, you know, I, I was quite interested too in this kind of right to uh, enable the use of data, which I thought was really unique. So to me, that was something that was that was different about this act than perhaps the GDPR and and kind of some of the those similar ones. Them. And uh, because it was trying to balance out these two things. Um, Whether it's going to be successful, you know, there's been a lot of pushback on that. Uh, You know, we'll see where it goes. But I like the effort to move in that direction and finding ways to enable uses of data while at the same time protecting personal information. Um, And also this broader right to an explanation. So very happy with that. Um, the, The other thing that I quite liked was this introduction of codes of practice. So... Uh, this kind of effort to be a bit more nimble and responsive in working with organizations to make sure that they're complying with the provisions. This seemed to be, to my mind, at least, um, a really effective way to be able to do that. I did wonder about the resource burden of the privacy commissioner and being able to, to do this work kind of on a one-on-one level with organizations, but I do like the idea.
0: Yeah, no, I think it's gotten a good reaction Uh, and you're right. So there's, there's quite a lot in there that uh, I think has, has, generated a pretty positive reception. What are some of the concerns that you had with the bill? And we'll get into some of the specifics in a moment, but just at a high level, what are some of the concerns that you've had?
1: Yes. Okay. So high level. Um, I think that it seemed to miss the mark, and I'm trying to find a way to say this. Um, It seemed to miss the mark about some of the big tech issues that we are facing going forward. And I think that that's the issue of really that idea of inferential data and all the ways that we are constantly generating information about ourselves. But increasingly, you know, automated systems and AI are, are generating data about us, you know, taking the seemingly ordinary data and the mundane things and creating profiles about us. And and the act doesn't seem to really address those particular issues. You know, there, there are various provisions and we can take a look at them as we go along, um, that, you know, it will focus on, for example, just an obligation related to the, the user or the individual and the initial organization, but won't apply to all the different, you know, companies and organizations that might gain access to that particular data or be generating profiles about an individual. I think that's going to be a problem going forward. I think that it really risks the kind of sustainability of the act. Um, and and the question is really how how do we solve that problem? That's a that's a bigger thing than we we can kind of talk about. I don't have all the answers here, but I but I've been wondering if you know one of the big reasons why it's not addressed is that it, it can't be with this kind of legislation, which is trying to be all things to all types of organizations. Um, I think that a high level, the other big thing is how it deals with consent. Um, and we can dive a little bit deeper into this as we go along, but I I like that the Act tries to Tackle kind of when consent is useful and when it's not. Um, I just question whether a consent based regime is always appropriate. And in some ways, I don't know how it could be anything but this. Um, you know, we want it to be inter- interoperable, right? With the GDPR, we want it to work with the California Consumer Privacy Act. Um, all those things. And they're all driven essentially by consent regimes. So I don't know how much kind of room there really was to move away from a consent regime, but it seemed to me that um, there are much greater and wider instances where consent is not appropriate and the act still relies on that type of framework.
0: Yeah, why don't we stick with that for just a moment? Because that coming into the bill, as part of the public consultations or discussions that were taking place, consent figured, I think, quite prominently. And you had certainly some groups taking the position that cons- consent is largely a fiction in many situations. I mean, we claim that people have given consent. We know full well they haven't taken the time to read, much less fully understand what they're they are consenting to Uh, the challenge of course is coming up with an alternative Um, if there's some is there some better way of providing people with the kinds of safeguards they need to to and ensure that the way their information is being used and collected reflects their expectations at a minimum in a reasonable way how do we do that do you think if not with consent
1: yeah so this is what I've been trying to mull over myself and I am So this is my big sigh as I try to work through this as well. I I have a lot of sympathy for uh, continuing to rely on a consent-based regime um, because to a certain extent, individuals have some agency to make decisions about how they want to manage their their privacy boundaries. You know, we each have different um, views on what we find acceptable or not in this space. And so I like the push for plain language requirements. I also like the push that consent's not always needed in some circumstances. You know, whether the Act got it right by saying things like, I can't even remember the exact language in the Act where it was saying that in certain circumstances, you're not necessarily going to to need consent um, if it doesn't seem reasonable in the circumstances given the sensitivity of the data. It was something like that. Um, Maybe it pitches it wrong, but I like that they're turning their minds to that. So maybe it's about tweaking the language. But there are other areas where maybe consent shouldn't operate. And I'm starting to wonder if maybe it just needs to be uh, legislated in a different context. So when I look at some of the big issues I was mentioning about inferential data, all this effort sometimes to write a technology-neutral law that applies to all the different organizations and circumstances we can imagine. Something like this the issues that we're facing in that kind of social media security context don't really align with some of the things that we see with, you know, your average organization that is trying to figure out how it can store data and share data when it comes to employment information and customer information, right? Maybe we need to deal with it separately. I don't think that consent is necessarily the appropriate regime to be dealing with some of the bigger issues with inferential data. I think that there's a point where where perhaps an assessment needs to be made about what the privacy values are and the steps that need to be taken by organizations to protect that privacy outside the consent context. So maybe we need, and this is uh, maybe a crazy idea that we need to be more technology specific and be okay with the fact that maybe the legislation won't be of use past a certain point but we need something that directly engages with some of the mischief we're we're concerned about
0: I mean that's definitely counterintuitive, <laughs> in terms of shift when we hear so much about technological neutrality. But uh, I mean, you, you raised some interesting points. You, you just mentioned privacy values, and speaking of values, the piece also talked about missed opportunities. Uh, what stood out? Uh, so what stood out as not being in the bill that you see as a real missed opportunity?
1: Yeah. So the the big missed opportunity that um, I noticed was that it was not rooted in a rights based framework, and. I know that this was something that the Privacy Commissioner requested or, or recommended with uh, with the bill. Um, I know it's been raised by others. You know, your colleague Teresa Scazza. and and it was a thing that I that I noticed throughout the Act is that occasionally rights language would be used. Um, rights based concerns were hinted at. You know, the idea that uh, organizations should assess. Uh, data that's going to cross borders, you know, for privacy implications, but there's no rights rooting of it. And I think that that really risks the sustainability of the act to address some of the bigger problems we're going to face going forward. Um, You know, the GDPR in in contrast is rooted in a rights framework. So it's rooted in the Charter, Charter of Fundamental Rights. It's, you know, they have the right to data protection. They have the right to privacy And that would tell the commissioner, it tells tribunals and courts how to understand these particular provisions. Um, You know, a human rights narrative is, I I was trying to think through why I thought it was so important. And I think the human rights narrative is, it's a story, isn't it? And it's a story about privacy. It's a story about um, what is meaningful. And it links deeply to theories of privacy. It links to the wider Um, analysis of kind of some of the the social roles that uh, that, um, privacy plays in in, in providing meaning in our lives. And without that kind of basis, there isn't this story and narrative that guides the way that these particular provisions should be interpreted. So we can say that, you know, we should look at um, certain exceptions through the lens of minimal impairment and proportionality that an organization should look at the privacy implications and then a tribunal perhaps at some point assesses that. Um, But what's the context that they understand what that balancing should be? There's nothing to guide that.
0: Yeah, no, this is, and and the minister mentioned it on the podcast last week, and I I asked him about the omission, asked him also about the omission on the political party side and i think the response unsurprisingly is that this is a commercial privacy law you know that's where the government's jurisdiction lies and that's what they're trying to achieve but that means engaging i think far more in a balancing act in terms of competing interests around privacy as a as opposed to trying to root it in the kind of foundation that you're describing
1: it's interesting because i don't see that um the fact that it's a consumer privacy uh piece of legislation is an answer to the lack of a human rights framework and you know in a lot of ways human rights is now experienced between individuals and private companies and ultimately is the obligation of the state to ensure that human rights are protected for for all of its people right and so if that means examining private legislation to ensure that it has that appropriate balance it's the obligation of the state to do that and we see that play out in employment legislation right when we've looked at certain rights and, and and within, you know, in our workplaces, and, and there's no reason why it can't happen here. And, and it would be a huge failure to not look at the consumer space through that particular lens just because it involves private parties, because that means most of our experiences then are excluded.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. The, the bill does raise, and you mentioned it off the top in terms of some of the good, does establish a whole series of new rights, powers, methods of enforcement. I mean, it really does represent a significant overall all, overhaul in what we have right now. Uh, when we when I talked to Baines last week, he, he really did emphasize the consumer rights and powers side of things. Why don't we talk about a, a couple of those? He mentioned the right to withdraw consent anyone that knows anything about the existing privacy law knows that we can already withdraw our consent. Um, so in your view, what's changed uh, with this bill in terms of withdrawal of consent?
1: Yeah. So this is one of the things that I really like about this act. And, um, and that is that it, it tends to do some really fine tuning, of existing rights in a way that's really meaningful. And this is a good example here where we already have the right to withdraw consent. Um, but if could be um it, it was dependent on the fact that you know it could be limited by contract, any contract, but now it can only be limited via reasonable terms of a contract. And so it's that slight change where. There can be no limitation on it unless, at least, the contract itself is reasonable. That that slight change, that oversight, I think, is really effective.
0: Yeah, no, that's a that's a good point. There's also much talk about right to. There's has been much talk about the right to be forgotten. Sometimes discussed as a, a right to de-index. Uh, is that covered by the legislation? I, I think there's been different reads on that. And if it if it is, how far do you think that deletion right extends?
1: Yeah, I've been trying to work that one out. Uh, myself it certainly does not play as or read to me as a broad right to be forgotten Um, it is narrowly just a right of erasure Um, but in a lot of ways that means that it mimics the GDPR a lot more that way Uh, it's limited to information though that the organization collects from individuals so it would not include things like and again, this is—I keep going back to kind of this same missed, um, missed point throughout the act. It does not go uh, include inferential data, so we would have a right to erasure when it came to the organization that collects our information. We would have it as to the third party service providers, you know, maybe the cloud providers or someone in the supply chain or whoever, that the organization would then have to pass on your request to and then get confirmation back. Um, But it doesn't then reach all the other players that might buy the data or use the data in various ways or generate stories about you from it. So we don't have a broader right to be forgotten here. It is, is quite narrow. Um, I would like to see it broaden to address at least those the inferential data aspects. And, and that's where California does quite a bit more.
0: Yeah. i mean speaking of which you've referenced now both the gdpr as well as the california legislation uh, to what extent how do you think the canadian law compares i'm, I'm sorry, i asked baines about this as well he mentioned that of course we're draw they, they were drawing from some of those experiences but ultimately seeking to create a, a canadian statute that reflects the various issues that that, are, that resonate here, some of which overlap, but some of which may not. What's your views on, on how this compares to particularly the GDPR and the CCPA coming out of California?
1: I think that it has a lot more in common with the GDPR than the CCPA. Um, and, and I'm curious what your view is actually on that, because the it seemed to me to um, adopt many of the same types of introductions in our act that were then first introduced in the GDPR. You know, that idea of a right of data portability, rights of at least confirming these rights of erasure, we kind of introduced it more explicitly here. Um, Broader, you know, rights of explanation. We go further. So the GDPR had, you know, it, it was kind of seemed to be all over the news that the GDPR was introducing this right to explanation, but it was actually quite a narrow right to wholly automated decisions that impact an individual. So Canada has is unique in, um, for example, creating a broader right of explanation for just generally any uh, predictions made from automated decision systems. That is a welcome move. Um, it doesn't, to my mind, have a lot in common with the California legislation. The California legislation was quite interesting to me because it seemed to uh i mean it, it had wide application but it directly engaged with the pernicious problem of kind of the data brokerage industry if we can say that widely and so it provides all kinds of rights that are not in our act you know uh, a right to opt out of the sale of your data to third parties and and if then a third party um, wants to sell that data further down the line, that third party has to come back and seek, explicitly seek um, uh, consent. Or actually, sorry, they have to let the individual know and then the individual can opt out. That's a huge amount of control for uh, for a user or for an individual, and I don't see that anywhere in our Act.
0: Yeah. No, and, and, and I think that's right. And, and I would agree that I think it's pretty clear that GDPR was more the model, or at least... One can well imagine the drafters or policymakers almost sitting there with a checklist looking at some yeah. of the, the major GDPR issues and trying to identify uh, whether or not they were now captured and how they compared. And In fact, I think the government gave gave it away a little bit when one of the initial talking points right off the bat, talking about penalties, was to compare the maximum canadian penalties to the rest of the g7 i mean it was quite clearly just a reference here's what everyone else is doing on penalties and here's how we compare and i suspect that was the case for many of the other provisions in the in the legislation or in the bill speaking of that that international dimension cross border data flows has been another one of these issues that's generated a lot of discussion and some controversy over the last number of months and years. You had the Federal Privacy Commissioner's consultation on this issue. Of course, there are trade agreement provisions in the USMCA, um, in the CPTPP that deal with some of these issues. How does uh, this bill seek to address the the issue of cross-border data transfers?
1: Yeah, it's quite interesting. I... uh... This is going to impose quite significant obligations, I think, on businesses. And and it's that Section 62 um, that I mentioned earlier, which is that organizations have to, you know, to fulfill the openness and transparency obligations, they have to disclose any cross-border data transfers Um a, disclose sorry, if they carry out cross-border data transfers that may have reasonably foreseeable privacy implications. And so that means organizations for each data transfer ultimately need to be assessing what the privacy implications are of that. Um, that's going to be a quite a hefty obligation on businesses but that's also the direction that we're going in. You know, when I, I was just recently doing work, trying to do some comparative work with the GDPR and, um, and there's been so much movement, even in the last six months. If we look at shrimps 2 we look at the recommendations that came out of the European Data Protection Board just a few weeks ago. Um, they all set out, you know, look, organizations need to be mapping their data, mapping where it goes. These are all excellent things that an organization needs to do. Mm-hmm. Um they need to essentially track every data transfer, make an assessment of essentially the foreign surveillance laws and assess really what the privacy risks are if, and any data that that moves through their organization that they collect, user disclose. That sounds like precisely the things that we want done in order to protect individual privacy. I, what always kind of is in the back of my mind when I see this is how is an organization supposed to actually kind of put this to work because even for sophisticated and large scale organizations, this can be incredibly difficult. I both think this is exactly what we need and worry that it's just one of those things that just nobody can comply with.
0: Huh, that's interesting. I mean, it's, you know, I think some, some, some people's initial reaction to it was that as between creating a uh, use an EU style, uh, adequacy standard that basically takes the position that we're going to restrict these data transfers, unless it's being transferred to a place that that has an adequate level of privacy tra- protection, the transparency type approach with this disclosure and the kind of assessment that you've just outlined um, in some ways didn't go as far as the EU, but I think you're highlighting that the obligations will be pretty significant as they, as organizations have to really sort through and think through the implications of, of their, data transfer policies and practices? Well,
1: and as you say, too, with the GDPR, I mean, ultimately, there's no real choice but to go in this particular direction. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't go in that direction. I'm just saying that the road has been set and um, it's been paved and we're on it. And, um, and I worry about how we should make this feasible. What is you know, the resource constraints of organizations, but also even of of the Privacy Commissioner's Office working to try to develop practices with these organizations through these codes of practice.
0: Yeah. The, there's also a privacy tribunal. I wanted to, to touch on that. Quickly, that that represents a really significant change from a from an enforcement administration perspective. Really now, setting up the privacy commissioner in concert with the tribunal. Uh, what are your views on on the tribunal? It obviously, I think, has some potential benefits associated with the review, the due process side of things, perhaps greater deference at the courts, but. You know a lot of people have been talking about, well, does this make it more challenging, more difficult for people to to bring their case, make it things take longer? Um, th- that kind of delay? what what are what's your perspective on the issue?
1: i I really like the idea of a tribunal. I, I mean, and I admit I generally favor um more tribunals to deal with all kinds of technology related issues. You know, in a separate context, I was advocated advocating we need this to deal with um generally, uh, defamation and and privacy related complaints. So I, I like it in general, um, specific to this act. I, you know, I still have questions about scope and I, so it's, it's, I like the idea that we have it. Um, what I don't quite know is what it means that the tribunal only hears and what is it is, is um, findings or rulings, I think, something like that of the commissioner. And so I don't actually know what a decision is exactly. And um, and so maybe you have some insight into this particular point of, you know, um, if, if an individual doesn't like a decision that's been made about the privacy commissioner, for example, that they have not filed their complaint in a reasonable time and decide not to investigate. Like, I assume that would be something that the tribunal would um, be able to uh, to examine
0: yeah there is a concern it's uh, i think you've highlighted a good point there there is a concern that while where the privacy commissioner has conducted an inquiry and i think that's the language they're using in the bill the there is the ability then to take that forward with the tribunal whether either side can effectively appeal or have the tribunal conduct a review But where the commissioner decides not to conduct an inquiry off a complaint, it does not appear that there is that same right. And while I understand there may be situations where the commissioner says it's just simply frivolous, there's no reason for me to put in the resources to conduct a full inquiry, the fact that this effectu- effectively stops the person from really doing anything further, including uh, potentially triggering the private right of action because there hasn't been tribunal decision, uh, I think is problematic. I, I think you know there need, we need this kind of sit with a bit of a flow chart that identifies the various different outcomes that can come from someone filing a complaint and make sure there's appropriate redress in all circumstances. And I'm not sure the way that it's structured right now that that's the case.
1: Yeah, no, I tend to agree. I think that's a good point, and and you know, a flowchart would do it. So you know, we can do a little you know check. Great tribunal, I like the idea of that. I think that we need that to have some sort of due process and oversight about what the privacy commissioner does. I think it enables greater access. Um, I, I was interested when you said that it it might not. It might actually um, uh, be. Uh, a deterrent in some ways for individuals making complaints. But as you say, I mean, I, I, yeah, I, I have read through the act a few different times and I keep finding that I am I hit these walls where I'm not sure what its scope is or is not. And as you identify, that's a real gap there where I think an individual should have access to the tribunal. I, you know, the other point is you've mentioned before the idea that it lacks specialists. I think it's critical. I agree with that. I mean, the, the tribunal has to be made up primarily of those with expertise in the field um you know this is this is a changing area and um and it requires a certain amount of knowledge uh to be able to understand the breadth of 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 the particular issues and the nuance of some of the legal points and so why would we not have specialists populate that tribunal
0: yeah, no, I think I totally agree with that. Uh, and hopefully th- there'll be an opportunity as part of the study to to reshape some of those provisions to take that into account. Um, finally, speaking of reshaping privacy and privacy legislation, you mentioned in, in your post that Alberta, as a result of this legislation, assuming it passes, may need reform as well. Now, we've seen some efforts in Quebec some consultations and work in Ontario, uh, as well as some work in British Columbia. What has been happening in in Alberta with respect to reform, and what would you view as some of the key changes that are necessary at a provincial level?
1: So that's a great question, and I think that um, the answer right now is it's a bit Crickets in Alberta. And I don't think that that's a failure of, of, uh, Alberta's privacy commissioner. I think she's fierce. And I think she has brought forward, um, a series of amendments. I can't even remember when it was. They did considerable work. Uh, it maybe was six years ago. And, um, and had hearings and ultimately didn't lead to any changes in our privacy legislation. And so I imagine that this will be seen as a welcome opportunity to reintroduce some amendments to Alberta's act. Um, But I haven't seen or heard of any movement on that front recently here. So I don't know, but it's going to be needed because we don't have any of the user type empowerment provisions that are talked about in uh Bill C11. So all these ideas of rights of data portability, rights of erasure, um none of that exists currently under our provincial legislation. And so I don't see how we'll be able to maintain um uh, this substantial similarity uh, designation without making some changes soon.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting it's it's a really interesting point, you know. There's so much initial focus on the federal legislation. And sometimes there's been some talk of to about the extent to which it mirrors some of the legislative proposals that have taken place elsewhere, particularly the the new Quebec bill. Uh, But you, I think have brought up a whole separate and really important issue. And that is the follow on effects in other jurisdictions that provincial jurisdictions that have moved forward with private sector privacy legislation met the substantial similarity test in the past, but uh, would be unlikely to do so given what their legislation legislation looks like now as compared to where the federal law is headed.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, in a way, it just forces Alberta's hand, which is fine. I mean, we need to update our laws anyways. And so, um, uh, but it uh, will definitely push it at a speed that maybe wasn't um, in the works otherwise.
0: Okay, so lots happening federally, and uh, as we look ahead, there may be lots happening at the provincial level as well. Emily, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to lawbites at pobox.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at lawbitespod, or Michael Geist at mgeist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca, or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The Labites Podcast is produced by Gerardo Lebron Leboy. Music by the Leboy Brothers, Gerardo and Jose Lebron Leboy. Credit information for the clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes for this episode at michaelgeist.ca. I'm Michael Geist.